Appendix of Vanished Arizona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. Vanished Arizona. Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summerhays. Appendix. Nantucket Island, June 1910. When a few years ago I determined to write my recollections of life in the army, I was wholly unfamiliar with the methods of publishers, and the firm to whom I applied to bring out my book did not urge upon me the advisability of having it electrotyped, firstly because, as they said afterwards, I myself had such a very modest opinion of my book, and secondly because they thought a book of so decidedly personal a character would not reach a sale of more than a few hundred copies at the farthest. The matter of electrotyping was not even discussed between us. The entire edition of one thousand copies was exhausted in about a year, without having been carried on the list of any bookseller, or advertised in any way, except through some circulars sent by myself, to personal friends, and through several excellent reviews in prominent newspapers. As the demand for the book continued, I have thought it advisable to reissue, adding a good deal that has come into my mind since its publication. It was after the colonel's retirement that we came to spend the summers at Nantucket, and I began to enjoy the leisure that never comes into the life of an army woman during the active service of her husband. We were no longer expecting sudden orders, and I was able to think quietly over the events of the past. My old letters, which have been returned to me, really, gave me the inspiration to write the book, and as I read them over, the people and the events therein described were recalled vividly to my mind events which I had forgotten, people whom I had forgotten, events and people all crowded out of my memory for many years by the pressure of family cares and the succession of changes in our stations, by anxiety during Indian campaigns and the constant readjustment of my mind to new scenes and new friends. And so, in the delicious quiet of the autumn days at Nantucket, when the summer winds had ceased to blow, and the frogs had ceased their pipings in the salt meadows, and the sea was wondering whether it should keep its summer blue or change into its winter grey, I sat down at my desk and began to write my story. Looking out over the quiet ocean, in those wonderful November days, when a peaceful calm brooded over all things, I gathered up all the threads of my various experiences and wove them together. But the people in the lands I wrote about did not really exist for me. They were dream people and dreamlands. I wrote of them as if they had appeared to me in those early years, and strange as it may seem, I did not once stop to think if the people and the land still existed. For a quarter of a century I had lived in the day that began with revile and ended with taps. Now on this enchanted island there was no revile to awaken us in the morning, and in the evening the only sound we could hear was the ruck of the waves on the far outer shores, and the sand tolling of the bell-boy when the heaving swells of the ocean came rolling over the bar. And so I wrote, and the story grew into a book which was published and sent out to family and friends. As time passed on I began to receive orders for the book from army officers, and then one day I received orders from people in Arizona, and I awoke to the fact that Arizona was no longer the land of my memories. I began to receive booklets telling me of projected railroads, also pictures of wonderful buildings, all showing progress and prosperity. And then came letters from some presidents of railroads whose 
line ran through arizona and from bankers and politicians and businessmen of tucson phoenix and yuma city photographs showing shady roads and streets where once all was a glare and a sandy waste letters from mining men who knew every foot of the road we had marched over pictures of the great laguna dam on the colorado and of the quarters of the government reclamation service corps at yuma these letters and pictures told me of the wonderful contrast presented by my story to the Arizona of today, and although I had not spared the, that country in my desire to place before my children and friends a vivid picture of my life out there, all these men seemed willing to forgive me and even declared that my story might do as much to advance their interest in the prosperity of Arizona as anything which had been written with only that object in view. My soul was calmed by these assurances, and I ceased to be distressed by thinking over the descriptions I had given of the unpleasant conditions existing in that country in the seventies. In the meantime, the San Francisco Chronicle had published a good review of my book and reproduced a photograph of Captain Jack Mellon, the noted pilot of the Colorado River, adding that he was undoubtedly one of the most picturesque characters who ever lived on a Pacific coast, and that he had died some years ago. And so he was really dead and perhaps the others, too, were all gone from the earth, I thought, when one day I received a communication from an entire stranger who informed me that the writer of the review in San Francisco newspaper had been mistaken in the matter of Captain Mullen's death, that he had been seen recently, and that he lived at San Diego. So I wrote him and made haste to forward a copy of my book, which reached him at Yuma, on the Colorado, and this is what he wrote. Yuma, December fifteenth, 1908 my dear Mrs. Summerhays, your good book and letter came yesterday, p.m., for which accept my thanks. My home is not in San Diego, but in Coronado, across the bay from San Diego. That is the reason I did not get your letter sooner. In one hour after I received your book, I had ordered for nine of them. All these books go to the official force of the reclamation service here, who were damning the Colorado for the government irrigation project. They are not damming it as we formerly did, but with good solid masonry. The dam is 4,800 feet long and 300 feet wide and 10 feet above high water. In high water it will flow over the top of the dam, but in low water the ditches or canals will take all the water out of the river. The approximate cost is 3 million. There will be a tunnel under the river at Yuma, just below the bridge, to bring the water in Arizona, which is thickly settled to the Mexican line. I have done nothing on the river since the 23rd of last August, at which date they closed the river to navigation, and the only reason I am now in Yuma is trying to get something from government for my boats, made useless by the dam. I expect to get a little, but not a tenth of what they cost me. Your book could not have a better title. It is Vanished Arizona, sure enough. Vanished the good and warm hearts that were here when you were. The people here now are cold-blooded as a snake, and are all trying to get the best of the other fellow. There are but two alive that were on the river when you were on it. Polymus and myself are all that are left, but I have many friends on this coast. The nurse Patrocina died in Los Angeles last summer, and the crying kid, Jessica, she had on the boat when you went from Heronburg to the mouth of the river, grew up to be the finest-looking girl in these parts. She was a star witness in a murder trial in Los Angeles last winter, and her picture was in all of the papers. I'm sending you a picture of the steamer Mojave, which was not on the river when you were here. 
I made twenty trips with her up the Virgin River, which is in a hundred and forty miles above Fort Mojave, or seventy-five miles higher than any other man has gone with a boat. She was ten feet longer than the Gila, or any other boat ever on the river. Excuse this blowing, but it's the truth. In 1864 I was on a trip down the Gulf of California in a small sailboat, and one of my companions was John Stanton. In Angel's Bay a man whom we were giving a passage to murdered my partner and ran off with the boat and left Charlie Tyson, John Stanton, and myself on the beach. We were seventeen days tramping to a village with nothing to eat but cactus, but I think I've told you the story before, and what I want to know is this Stanton alive. He belonged to New Bedford. His father had been master of a whale-ship. When we reached Guimers, Stanton found a friend, the mate of a steamer. The mate also belonged to New Bedford. When we parted, Stanton told me he was going home, and was going to stay there, and as he was two years younger than me, he may still be in New Bedford, and as you are on the ground, maybe you can help me to find out. All the people that I know praise your descriptive power, and now, my dear Mrs. Summerhays, I suppose you will have a hard time wading through my school but I know you'll be generous and remember that I went to sea when a little over nine years of age, and had my pen been half as often in my hand as a marlin spike, I would now be able to write a much clearer hand. I have a little bungalow on Coronado Beach, across the bay from San Diego, and if you ever come there, you or your husband, you are welcome. While I have a bean, you can have half. I would like to see you and talk over old times. Yuma is quite a place now. No more abodes built. It is brick and concrete, cement, sidewalks, and flower gardens with electric light and a good water system. My home is within five minutes' walk of the Pacific Ocean. I was born at Digby, Nova Scotia, and the first music I ever heard was the surf of the Bay of Fundy, and when I close my eyes forever, I hope the surf of the Pacific will be the last sound that will greet my ears. I read Vanished Arizona last night until after midnight and thought what we both had gone through since you first came up to the Colorado with me. My acquaintance with the army was always pleasant, and like Tom Moore I often say, let fate do her worst, there are relics of joy bright dreams of the past which she cannot destroy, which come in the night-time of sorrow and care, and bring back the features that joy used to wear. Long, long be my heart, with such memories filled." I suppose the colonel goes down to the ship chandlers and gams with the old whaling captains. When I was a boy there was a wealthy family of ship-owners in the new Bedford by the time of Robinson. I saw one of their ships in Bombay, India. That was in 1854. Her name was Mary Robinson, and although there were over a hundred ships on the bay, she was the handsomest there. Well, good friend, I am afraid I will tire you out, so I will belay this, and with best wishes for you and yours. I am yours truly, J. A. Mellon. P.S. Fisher is long since called to his long home. I had fancied, when Vanished Arizona was published, that it might possibly appeal to the sympathies of women, and that men would lay it aside as a sort of a woman's book. But I have received more really sympathetic letters from men than I have from women, all telling me in different words that a human side of the story had appealed to them, and I suppose this comes from the fact that originally I wrote it for my children, and felt perfect freedom to put my whole self into it. And now that the book is entirely out of my hands, I am glad that I wrote it as I did, for if I had stopped to think that my dream people might be real people, and that the real people would read it, I might never have had the courage to write it at all. The many letters I have received, of which 
there have been several hundred, I am sure, have been so interesting that I reproduce a few more of them here. Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indianapolis, Indiana, January 10th, 1909. My dear Mrs. Summerhays, I have just read the book. It is a good book, a true book, one of the best kind of books. After taking it up, I did not lay it down till it was finished, till with you I had again gone over the Malapais deserts of Arizona and recalled my own meetings with you at Niobrara and at old Fort Marcy or Santa Fe. You were my cicerone in the old town, and I couldn't have had a better one or more charming one. The book has recalled many memories to me, scarcely a name you mention, but is or was a friend. Major Van Vliet loaned me his copy, but I shall get one of my own and shall tell my friends in the East that if they desire a true picture of army life, as it appears to the army woman, they must read your book. For my part, I feel that I must congratulate you on your successful work, and that you, for the pleasure you have given me in its perusal. With cordial regard to you and yours, and with best wishes for many happy years, very sincerely, yours, L. W. V. Kennan, Major, 10th Infantry. Headquarters, 3rd Brigade, National Guard of Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, January 19, 1908. Dear Madam, I am sending you herewith my cheque for two copies of Vanished Arizona. This summer our mutual friend, Colonel Beaumont, late 4th U.S. Cavalry, ordered two copies for me, and I have given them both away to friends whom I wanted to have read your delightful and charming book. I am now ordering one of these for another friend, and wish to keep one in my record library as a memorable story of the bravery and courage of the noble band of army men and women who helped to blaze the pathway of the nation's progress in its course of empire westward. No personal record written, which I have read, tells so splendidly of what the good women of our army endured in the trials that beset the army and the life of the plains in the days succeeding the Civil War. And all this at a time when the nation and its people were caring but little for you and the struggles you were making. I will be pleased indeed if you will kindly inscribe your name on one of the books you send me. Sincerely yours, C. B. Doherty, Brigade General N. G. P. A. January nineteenth, nineteen o eight, Schenectady, New York, June eighth, nineteen o eight, Mrs. John W. Summerhays, North Shore Hill, Nantucket. My dear Mrs. Summerhays, were I to say that I enjoyed Vanished Arizona, I should very inadequately express my feelings about it, because there is so much to arouse emotions deeper than what we call enjoyment. It stirs the sympathies and excites our admiration for your courage and your fortitude. In a word, the story, honest and unaffected, yet vivid, has in it the touch of nature which makes kin of us all. How actual knowledge and experience broadens our minds. Your appreciation of and charity for the weaknesses of those living a lonely life of deprivation on the frontier impress me very much. I wish, too, that what you say about the canteen could be published in every newspaper in America. Very sincerely yours, M. F. Westover, Secretary General Electric Co. The Military Service Institution of the United States, Governor's Island, New York, June twenty fifth, nineteen o eight. Dear Mrs. Summerhays, I offer my personal congratulations upon your success in producing a work of such absorbing interest to all friends of the Army and so instructive to the public at large. I have just finished reading the book from cover to cover to my wife, and we have enjoyed it thoroughly. 
Will you please advise me where the book can be purchased in New York, or otherwise mail two copies to me at 203 West 54th Street, New York City, with memo of price per copy, that I may remit the amount? Very truly yours, T. F. Rodenbaugh, Secretary and Editor. Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut. May 15, 1910. Dear Mrs. Summerhays, I have read every word of your book, Vanished Arizona, with intense interest. You have given a vivid account of what you actually saw and lived through, and nobody can resist the truthfulness and reality of your narrative. The book is a real contribution to American history and to the chronicles of army life. Faithfully yours, W. M. Lyon Phelps, Professor of English Literature at Yale University. Lona Koning, M.D., January 2nd, 1909. Colonel J. W. Summerhays, New Rochelle, New York. Dear Sir, Captain William Baird, 6th Cavalry, retired now at Annapolis, sent me Mrs. Summerhays' book to read, and I've read it with delight, for I was in K when Mrs. Summerhays took on in the 8th. Myself and my brother Michael served in K Company from David's Island to Camp Apache. Doubtless you have forgotten me, but I am sure you remember the tall fifer of K, Michael Garnett. He was killed at Camp Mohave in September 1885, while in Company G of the 1st Infantry. I was five years in K, but my brother re-enlisted in K, and afterward joined the 1st. He served in the 31st, 22nd, 8th, and 1st. Oh, that little book! We're all in it, even poor Charlie Bowen. Mrs. Summerhay should have written a longer story. She soldiered long enough with the eighth in the bloody seventies to be able to write a book five times as big. For what she's done, God bless her. She is entitled to the Irishman's benediction. May every hair in her head be a candle to light her soul to glory. We poured regulars have little said about us in print, and wish to God that vanished Arizona was the hands of every old veteran of the marching eighth. If I had the means, I would send a copy to our first sergeant, Bernard Moran, and the other old comrades of the soldiers' home. But, alas, evil times have fallen upon us, and I am not writing a Jeremiad. I took the book from the post office, and when I saw the cross-guns and the eight, there was a lump in my throat, and I went into the barber-shop and read it through before I left. A friend of mine was in the shop, and when I came to Pringle's death, he said, Garnet, that must be a sad book you're reading. Why, man, you're crying. I believe I was, but they were tears of joy, and, oh, Lord, to think of Bowen having a full page in history. But, after all, maybe he deserved it. And that picture of my company commander. Long, long have I gazed on it. I was only sixteen and a half years old when I joined his company at David's Island, December 6, 1871. Folliot A. Whitney was first lieutenant, and Cyrus Ernest second, what a fine man Whitney was! A finer man nor truer gentleman ever wore a shoulder-strap. If he had been company commander, I'd have re-enlisted and stayed with him. I was always afraid of Worth, though he was always good to my brother and myself. I deeply regretted Lieutenant Whitney's death in Cuba, and I watched Major Worth's career in the last war. It nearly broke my heart that I could not go. Oh, the rattle of the war-drum and the bugle-calls and the marching troops, it set me crazy and me not able to take a hand in the scrap. Mrs. Summerhays calls him W.M.T. Worth. Isn't it W.M.S. Worth? The copy I've read was loaned to me by Captain Baird. 
He says it's a Christmas gift from General Carter, and I must return it. My poor wife has read it with keen interest, and she says she, William, I'm going to have that book for my children, and she'll get it, yea, verily she will. Well, Colonel, I am right glad to know that you are still on the side of the great fight, and I know that you and Mrs. S. will be glad to hear from an old walker heap of the eighth. I'm working for a Cumberland newspaper, Lona Coning reporter, and I'll send you a copy or two of the paper with this. And now permit me to describe myself your comrade in arms, William A. Gurnett. Dear Mrs. Summerhays, read your book. In fact, when I got started, I forgot my bedtime, and you know how rigid that is, and sat it through. It has a bully note of the old army. It was all worth while. They had colour those days. I say, now suppose you had married a man who kept a drug store. See what you would have had and see what you would have missed. Yours, Frederick Remington. End of Appendix Recording by Ashley Jane End of Vanished Arizona Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summerhays.